You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. I like the crispy outside. I just don't like the potatoy inside. If you don't know who said that quote, if you can't quite place it, it was me. I said it this week, I said it to my wife Jacqueline, right after she said, I can't believe you don't like hash browns. I said, I like the crispy outside, I just don't like the potatoey inside. Now, some of you are a little uncomfortable at this moment, because you don't know who I am, and you're thinking, Pastor Jason left town, somebody got up, they're preaching hash browns, the church is in decline. Let me assure you that's not the case. The word is coming. We're going to bring the word big today. My name is Kyle Cheatham, and my wife Jacqueline and I joined this church back in March, and I've known Pastor Jason for about six years, and it's been uh, an amazing thing for God to reconnect, he and I, for God to bring our family into this church, Jacqueline and I, along with our boys, our boys Sawyer, Curly Redhead, who is almost six, and Harris Curly Blondhead, who is three, and to be a part of what God is doing. And I get to teach this morning in Jason's absence, and I'll get to do it another couple of times this summer. So I'm honored to do that, and I thank you for letting me be a part of this as well. Why are we talking about hash browns? Because of this. Some people think about Jesus the way I think about hash browns. They like this, but not this. If you went around and asked people about Jesus, what do you think about Jesus? Just people on the street, you're going to get a positive answer. I mean, by, by far, people have a, a, a nice thought about who Jesus was, usually is the way they're going to say it, rather than is. But what people want is they want peace, love, and joy Jesus. They don't necessarily want holy, king, and judge Jesus. But just like the hash brown, outside and inside, it's all potato, so with Jesus, the parts we like and the parts maybe we don't like, it's all Jesus. And what we have to do is embrace Jesus as he is. So my question for you this morning that I'm going to be asking repeatedly is, do you know my King Jesus? Do you know my King Jesus? And maybe to that question, somebody may be sitting here in this room that says, now, wait a minute, King Jesus? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know King Jesus, but I wait a minute, I do know moral example Jesus. I like him. I mean, he's good. He does a lot of good things. I think we should be more like him. King Jesus? No, I can't quite place him, but I, I am acquainted with what it is. It was good teacher Jesus. Yes, came across him before. Yeah, I had a lot of good things to say. I liked him. And so we live in a world that wants to kind of pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we want. And it always involves a reduction of who he really is. So C.S. Lewis has this great quote that's, that's well-known. You've probably heard this before, but it, it, it challenges that very idea. Lewis writes this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come 
With any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you know my king? The summary of my sermon this morning is this. Jesus said what he said and did what he did. Crown him or crucify him. Jesus is who he is. With great enthusiasm, let's open our Bibles. With greater enthusiasm, let's open our Bibles. Yes, there we go. Excellent. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is where you're turning. The fourth chapter of the third gospel, the third book of the New Testament. When we talk about crowning Jesus, my desire today is that, that all over this room, that we will be gladly submitting to Jesus our King. That we will be fully obeying Jesus our King. That we will be wholeheartedly worshiping Jesus our King. Now, last time we were in Luke, week before last, Pastor Jason walked us through the temptation of Jesus. We watched Jesus face off with the devil in the wilderness, three different temptations. Each time Jesus unsheathes, unsheathes? Unsheaths, let's go with that. Unsheaths his sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and he quotes Scripture, and he fights the devil by standing on the truth of God's word and he has emerged from that battlefield victorious and now is going to begin his public ministry. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter four, verse 14. Rather than read the whole passage through verse 30 um, all at once, we're just gonna break it down as we go through it. Starts off in Luke four, verse 14. Luke records, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, he is now in this region of Galilee. And Galilee is a region that is made up of many cities. And word is spreading about him. And he's going from synagogue to synagogue. And notice that response, being glorified by all. For the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, the response we see from the people in Galilee, their primary response to Jesus was worship. But it's going to change. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Remember, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. That's why he's sometimes referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, it was customary for a visiting rabbi um, at a synagogue to stand and read from the scriptures. They would have a, a reading from the law and a reading from the prophets and, and then comment on it. And that's what's happening in this moment. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And now what's going to happen here is he's going to find the place where what we would call Isaiah 61 is recorded. No chapters, no verse numbers then. And this is a massively important passage relating to the promised Messiah. Here it is, verse 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now this morning, if I read scripture and sat down, you would assume that I was done and somebody else was about to do something else. When we sit down, that's kind of what it means in our culture, but in a synagogue at that time, what that we do is the rabbi would read and then he would sit down to teach. So he sits down, all eyes are on Jesus. Surely, as he read that prophecy from Isaiah, there was a gravity, there was an authority with which he read those words. Now they're expecting him to comment on the reading. He sits and lets all of them just soak in that scripture for a moment and then without breaking eye contact, Jesus speaks and in verse 21, it says, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now keep in mind, the Jews in that synagogue would have been familiar with this passage. For hundreds of years, that passage had pointed to God's promised Messiah. But Jesus is now saying something about it that no one has ever said before, or at least they wouldn't have gotten away with saying it. Jesus read that passage about the promised Messiah. Then he sits down and he says, this passage is pointing to me. It's like Jesus takes out this truth grenade and he pulls the pin and he just rolls it casually into the center of the room. Perhaps Jesus read the passage like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's telling these people who have such a reverence for God's word, these scriptures, which you hold so very precious, are all pointing to me. Now remember our sermon summary this morning. Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did. Crown him or crucify him, Jesus is who he is. As we will see throughout this series in Luke, Jesus did earthly things in his three-year ministry that, that aligns with this prophecy. He, he fulfilled it in an earthly sense in different ways, but I don't think that's the main way that that prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. Rather than earthly things happening, I think the greater eternal things that happen by and through Jesus are what's most important. When I say that, I'm in no way trying to minimize the earthly miracles of Jesus. What I want to do instead is to maximize his eternal miracles. Consider this. Which is greater? For a blind person to be given their physical sight on earth or for someone who is living in the darkness of sin to have their eyes open spiritually so that they can see their sin and their need for a savior eternally? Which is greater for someone who is a slave on earth to be given earthly freedom or for someone who is a slave to sin to find freedom from sin in Christ for eternity? Which is greater for someone to be physically brought back to earthly life from the dead or for someone who is spiritually dead in sin to be made alive and given eternal life? The physical miracles of Jesus are life-changing so visible, so tangible that we might wrongly find ourselves marveling more about one of those things happening than we do about someone receiving eternal life by repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. 
the earthly miracles of Jesus are meaningful moments of ministry with an individual or a group of people. The earthly miracles of Jesus give credibility to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. But the earthly miracles of Jesus point to eternal miracles which have no expiration date. Now let's see how the Jews in the Nazareth synagogue responded when Jesus said that the prophecy in Isaiah was fulfilled in him. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Which makes it sound like there maybe have been more that Jesus said uh, rather than just that one statement so far. And Luke is maybe just boiling it down. We're not sure there. But look at this response in verse 22. It sounds good, right? But what we're going to find from the context is they are in hash brown Jesus mode. They, they like Jesus. This part. Things are going to turn quickly. Now, to, to help understand what's happening here, best way to understand Scripture is through Scripture, right? Scripture sheds light on Scripture. And so I want you to listen to a similar reaction, and I want you to note the reason that's given. This comes from John's Gospel, chapter 7. In verse 14 through 16, we read this. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled. Marveled. That's the same word that's back here in Luke 4. Marveled, saying, and here's what they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So in John 7 there, and in back in our passage in Luke 4, the Jews are impressed with the level of his learning, but not with the truth of his teaching. He's speaking in a way that, that they're like, wait a minute, he didn't go through all of the, the training that our rabbis went through, and yet look at the way that he's able to handle the word. They like the level of his learning, but they are not marveling at the truth of his teaching. His teaching has come from the Father himself. Back here in the end of verse 22, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now in isolation, you could read that in a very positive way. Would you look at that? Would you look at what Joe's boy grew up to be? As if it was a positive affirmation of Jesus. But, but Jesus' response prevents that misunderstanding. They're saying, wait a minute, we, we know his parents. How can this man claim to be the Messiah? Now keep in mind, give a little grace here. They've been around Jesus for, to some degree, for three decades. This is where he grew up. They know his earthly parents, Joe and Mary. Perhaps a few of them even bought some items from Joseph and Son's carpentry shop. The shop with like the extra P and the E on the end. That's kind of how I picture it. Even though it wasn't English, probably Aramaic or Greek, but that's how I picture it. And now this Jesus stands before them and declares that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited, promised prophesied Messiah. It's understandable why they would struggle a bit. And he said to them, he, Jesus, said to them, he sees their body language, he watches their facial expression, he hears the tone when they were commenting about, isn't this Joseph's son? And we, we're going to see, in, as we continue through our series, we're going to see in, in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, and Luke chapter 11, that he at times knows what people think, what people are thinking, Scripture tells us. And so he says this, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. 
In other words, Jesus knows that in their hearts they're saying, oh yeah? Prove it. Prove it. What began with marveling over his learning has quickly descended into skepticism and the tension is going to build all the way to the point of attempted murder. Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So we, we see that statement in verse 24 as kind of a, a principle, a proverb. Maybe you've quoted it before in reference to yourself or somebody else who, when it comes to the people that know them well, they, they don't find the same level of respect or honor or acceptance. In, in our situation, when that happens, it could be because they're aware of our sin and our shortcoming. And so sometimes the people that know us best may have a hard time uh, understanding how God is using us because they're aware of our flaws. Obviously, with Jesus, no one had any claim of sin against him, no evidence of sin against him. And yet, that was true in that situation. No profitable, acceptable in his hometown. They're thinking, wait a minute. I, I bought a yoke for my oxen from this guy like a couple of years ago. Now he's claiming to be a prophet. A prophet. He's claiming to be a spokesperson for God. This is important. When, when, when Jesus says, verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, it was greatly offensive to the people in that room because he's claiming to be speaking for God, claiming to be a prophet, and he's implying because of their resistance that they're missing out on it. I'm a prophet speaking on behalf of God, and you are missing what God is doing here. Now, he's not being unnecessarily rude or combative, but he also isn't there to win friends. He's there to proclaim truth, even if it makes them uncomfortable, and that's an understatement. Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did. Crown him or crucify him, Jesus is who he is. And now he's going to use a couple of Old Testament examples, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel, catch that, Israel, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You can read about that in 1 Kings 17, verse 27. Jesus says, and there were many lepers in Israel, catch that, Israel, in the time of the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. You can read about that in 2 Kings 5. Jesus, in what he has just said so far, has rebuked them threefold. Bam, bam, bam. He's saying just like many Israelite widows who missed out on the special provision that God showed to the Gentile widow from Sidon, and just like many lepers in Israel missed out on God's healing through Elisha that the Gentile Naaman received, you, Israelites in this room, are at risk of missing out on God's activity because you are missing the miracle that the promised Messiah is standing in your very presence. If this were being filmed, this moment that we're reading about from Luke 4, if it was being filmed and the camera was on Jesus, speaking these words, and then it began to pan across the room to the faces of the Jews in that room, what you would find is you would see them seething with rage, looking at one another in disbelief, deeply offended 
that this carpenter's son would imply that in some way they're out of step with God. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Filled with wrath. Back in verse 15, when we started our passage out this morning and we saw how Jesus was received generally in Galilee, the response was worship. And here, the response in Nazareth is wrath. Their flesh, the Jews in that synagogue, their flesh, that sinful, selfish part within us, is rising up with them. And it's saying, whoa, 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 wait just a second here, mister. You come into our synagogue, and first you claim to be the Messiah, and then you have the unmitigated gall to say that we are somehow missing out on what God is doing, but that Gentiles could pick up on it? Well, that's it. Just like that, Jesus blew the interview. But of course, he's not looking for their approval. They need his. They don't know it. He could have catered to their sensitivities. He could have been overly diplomatic so as not to offend. But no, Jesus is dropping truth bombs and they are enraged. There's nothing in this passage, nothing in this passage to suggest that Jesus spoke with a snarky or condescending tone or that his body language was combative. I want to emphasize that because sometimes I find in our culture today, um, you have a lot of Christian cowards on the one hand, a lot of Christian cowards who, who, who are like the way I was in high school where I wanted to make a stand for Jesus, but I didn't want it to cost me anything. But then you'll have some that in their boldness become jerks for Jesus. I've seen it on Twitter. We're not called to be jerks for Jesus. The gospel message is offensive in and of itself because it says we are not okay. We need a savior. So so let the gospel be offensive. We don't have to be unnecessarily offensive in the way that we communicate with people. But understand, we will offend people. Jesus does here. Let his words be the focus because even spoken in a clear, straightforward, compassionate manner, What Jesus says makes them conclude that he is worthy of the death penalty immediately. Look at verse 29. And they rose up and drove him, and that phrase means led him, cast him, dragged him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They are just angry. They don't just have murderous thoughts. They physically drag the Son of God to the edge of town with the full intention of throwing him over this cliff. I don't know about you. I've personally never been to a gathering of God's people that turned out this way. I've never seen something like this in person. But like a movie in my mind, I see them pushing and dragging Jesus toward this cliff, throwing him to the ground near the edge as this murderous mob kind of forms a semicircle around him with just the cliff to his back. Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did. Crown him or crucify him. Jesus is who he is. And then Luke records verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. To which I say, wait, what? Luke? um, Dr. Luke? 
known for a lot of times detail. Could you give a little bit here? Because this was building up, and then suddenly he went through their midst and went away. It doesn't say how it happened. How did Jesus just pass through this murderous mob? We don't know. But we do know from the context of the whole Bible that God can part the Red Sea. He can part a murderous mob. Whatever happens here is miraculous. It's majestic as Jesus, the King of Kings, walks through their midst. Do you know my King? I've prayed that if any unbelievers are here today, that God would open your eyes to your need for a Savior, that he would reveal to you that you are guilty of sin crimes against God. All of us are. And that we are not, never, we're never going to be good enough to cancel out the sin crimes that we've committed. We're either going to be relying on our own righteousness to get us to God, or we have to acknowledge that we'll never be righteous enough and rely on the righteousness of another. And the good news is that that is what Jesus came to do. He lived a perfect, perfectly obedient life, perfectly righteous. And when he died on the cross, it wasn't for his sin, it was for the sins of others. So that when we repent of our sin and place our faith in him, we are clothed with his righteousness. As we look to him as our savior king, the gospel, in a nutshell, in about 40 words, is this. God is holy. We are sinful, separated by our sin. Sent in love, Jesus died to bear God's wrath on our behalf. And resurrected gives us life and is our joy as we repent and place our lifelong faith in him. I call you to do that today. I, if you're a Christian and Christ is your king and you would struggle to be able to find the words to articulate the gospel to somebody else, memorize that right there. Our three-year-old says that every night after prayers. It's not too hard to learn how to articulate the gospel and then you can take months or years to unpack it with somebody. When you place your lifelong faith in Jesus, understand this, I wanna be clear, when you place your lifelong faith in Jesus, you are placing your faith in Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. Not as you want him to be, not as you imagine him to be, but as he is revealed through God's word. The parts we like, the parts we don't. Beware of hash brown Jesus. When they truly understand who Jesus is, think about this, when they truly understand who Jesus is, Rebellious people will respond to Jesus with wrath, like we saw in the story. Repentant people will respond to Jesus with worship. Which are you this morning? And I get how somebody could be here right now and they could say, look, come on now. You're creating a false dichotomy for me there. Like I've got to be this or this. I'm either responding to Jesus in wrath or worship. Come on now. There's a big zone in the middle there, and that's where I am. Maybe you're thinking, I, I'm not fully bowing down to Jesus, but I'm not bashing him either. And to that I say with all due respect that you do not yet understand who Jesus is. You don't see that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's king. 
And in that day, rebellious people will do it with resistance and receive the wrath of the king, while repentant people will do it with reverence and receive the reward of the king himself, his presence for eternity. Choose this day whom you will serve. If we're truly going to follow Jesus, who himself had some who wanted to crown him, but others who wanted to crucify him, we have got to be ready. This, this statement has never been more timely than now, maybe, but we've got to be ready for the rejection of the world. Jesus says this in John 15, verse 18 and follows, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. It's fascinating to watch Jesus interact with people who are just moments away from killing him. Jesus was kind, but he was never compromising. And we've got to, we've got to find that same kind of rhythm in our conversations with people, whether it's on social media or, or emails or direct encounters with people. Be kind, but never compromising. The reformer Martin Luther said uh, over 500 years ago, peace, if possible, truth, at all costs. And that's what we have to be today. Some Christians today and some churches today are guilty of choosing peace with the world over the truth of the word. If you are new here today, I'm happy to let you know that this church is radically committed to both uncompromising truth and Christ-like love. That's who we are called to be. And if you casually claim this morning to have crowned Jesus as your king, but you're still living as if you are your own Lord, please don't miss Jesus' warning in Matthew 7, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are religious people. These are church people who on the last day will find out that they're going to hell. But they thought, I was religious. I was very religious. I did all these things. I was involved in all of this. And Jesus says, I never knew you. That doesn't mean that Jesus had no idea who they were. That doesn't mean that. We're talking about a relationship with our king. They thought they knew Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus as your Lord, if you don't know Jesus as your king, as the authority of your life, then you don't know him as he's revealed in the Bible. And worse, he does not know you as your savior king. I wonder, do you know him? Jesus said what he said, and he did what he did. Crown him or crucify him. Jesus is who he is. Now, get really clear with me on this, because some of you, this has been bugging you the entire message, and I want to clarify something. All right? Jesus is king, whether we crown him or not. All right? Now, we, you understand our language that we use. Some of you, maybe in, in sharing your testimony, may say, and when I was 16, I made Jesus the Lord of my life. 
We understand what you mean. You're, you're saying that you submitted to Jesus in that moment. We're, you don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him king. He is king. But when I'm talking about crowning him, I'm talking about a response to him. I'm talking about a reaction to his reality. Be clear on this. If you claim that Jesus is your Lord, your king, then you will do what he says. That's what he said in the warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, just as if saying those words are enough, but the one who does the will of my Father. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Some of you came this morning so that the Holy Spirit at this moment could put his finger on your heart as he brings to your mind a thing that he has clearly called you to obey. And you're having to wrestle with, is Jesus my king or not? Because if he is, then that settles it. I'm going to obey. Is there any way in which you're refusing to obey your king today? Do you truly trust that his way is right and best? If I crown him, again, I mean gladly submit to him. I mean fully obey him. I mean wholeheartedly worship him. Now let me make something clear as we begin to wrap up here. There's a quote from Augustine near the end of the fourth century where he says this, on your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command and then command whatever you will. I love this quote by Augustine. It goes so well with David's message from last Sunday and if you missed that, get online and listen to it. The genius of these words here by Augustine reveal his understanding that we are not only in need of our king to reveal his commands to us, but we are in need of him to enable us to fulfill those commands. This is a mistake I made in my Christian life for years where I thought the Christian life was about going to God, discovering with him by his spirit through the word what he wanted you to do, and then going and doing it. That sounds fine. Wait, that sound, get God, go do what he said. That sounds right. The problem is, with the way I just described that, God stays back here, and I go over here. That's not obeying by faith. That's obeying in the flesh. That's me trying in my own strength and wisdom to do what he has called me to do, and I can't do that. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, John 15 says. And so Augustine got that when he says, give what you command then command whatever you will. Paul, in Colossians 1, gets this in his, in his ministry when he summarizes it, summarizes what his ministry was about, making disciples, and then he says this, the last verse of Colossians 1, and he says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his power, with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So Paul says, I labor, I struggle, but with his energy, his power. That's how we are to follow our king. It's grace-enabled effort. I love this. So how can we do it this week? This one week, for the next week, how can we walk in light of the realities that we've been talking about? Here's my challenge to you. I'm gonna put this prayer up on the screen. It's a simple prayer. I just put some words together as a way of articulating what we've been talking about. Jesus, you're my savior king. I trust your sovereign hand. Please command me anything, but give what you command. I want you to write that down. It's going to be on the screen for a couple of moments. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. If you don't have anything to write with, I want you to pull out your phone, and I want you to take a picture of the screen. It's really cool. Just go ahead and do that now. Please don't jump onto Twitter or anything like that. But just take a picture of the screen because I want you to pray this throughout the week. It's not a magical mantra. 
the words here have no meaning unless you mean them. But here's what I want you to consider doing. Praying this prayer multiple times, maybe throughout each day this week. Jesus, you're my Savior King. I trust your sovereign hand. Please command me anything, but give what you command. First thing in the morning, first thing in the morning you're praying that prayer, starting your day with your king. Maybe when you go out and you get in your car, before you start the engine, maybe you've written it on a little card right there um, on your dash to remind you, and you pause and you pray that because you want to drive in a way that reflects your king. You get to work, if that's what your life entails, and you, you get to this place, and before you go into your work, you pray this prayer so that your work and your witness reflect your king. You come back to your house at some point during the day or in the evening and you pull into the driveway and before you get out of the car, you pray this prayer again because you want to walk through that door and serve your king by serving your family. Or maybe just spontaneously throughout the day, you find yourself praying this prayer to refocus you when you've begun to slip into self-reliance, self-exaltation, self-centeredness of any kind. I want you to know my king. I want you to know him. I want you to worship him. I want you to make much of him. I want you to desire increasingly his rule and reign in your life. I, and I, I, want, I, want to, I want to stir our affections for him as our king. And so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. And then after the prayer, I want you to listen to something. A sermon was preached almost 50 years ago by Pastor S.M. Lockridge of San Diego, California. The message you're going to hear, he actually preached in Detroit. And you're going to hear just a, just a little audio snippet of it. And the words will be on the screen so that you could follow because it's an older recording, so it's deteriorated a little bit. But I want you to let this stir your affections for our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sit on the throne of this entire universe you're in the heavens, you do all that you please. We worship you for your sovereignty, your holiness, your goodness. We thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Christ, our King. I pray, Father, that you would help us all over this room to acknowledge our own kingdoms that we've set up, that we've begun to build, that have nothing to do with your name or your glory. I pray that you would tear those down in your mercy for us so that our lives could increasingly be all about your kingdom. Show us if there's any way in which we're not gladly submitting to you, any area where we're not fully obeying, any way in which we're not wholeheartedly worshiping the King of Kings. Father, we don't watch or listen to what's about to happen with a desire to be entertained, but we want our affections to be stirred for you. Help us to worship. Help us to respond to your rule and reign with worship. In Jesus' name, amen. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings and he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. 
Do you know my king? David said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. My king is the only one whom there no means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. Well, he, he's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He star guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you 
the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my
praise. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 